0: At its 2013 Emerging Artist Symposium on Musicals, Robin Goodman, commercial producer and founder of Second Stage Theatre, spoke with SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rusconi about discovering talent and developing new work in today's dynamic theatre climate. Goodman infuses her perspective as an actor-turned-producer with a well-rounded view of a production from page to stage and everything in between. Listen as she offers insight on keeping up with trending audience interest and younger sensibilities, procuring a strong design team, giving a memorable interview, and recognizing commercial viability in unexpected places. Hello. I'm director and fight choreographer Erica Gould and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast.
1: We all have your bio um, in front of us. It's long, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but I would love it if you could kind of recap your fabulous career. Um, I came
2: to New York uh, from Brandeis University as an actress, and I acted for about ten years, which I always say is a great way to begin producing because being inside the room... And understanding the process is a a very important thing when you're trying to talk to directors about their shows. Um, In 1979, Carol Rothman approached me and said, let's start a theater. And uh, we talked to every artistic director in town and realized that the only thing that was missing was giving contemporary plays a second production when they didn't work or they were only done for 12 performances. There was a showcase code that everyone was operating on then, and uh, no one was doing it then, and now everyone's doing it, but uh, we started, we called ourselves Second Stage, as you know, and uh, did our first production in 1980, and I stayed there for about 13 years, or almost exactly 13 years, or 50 plays later and musicals later. And uh, went and produced One Life to Live, a soap opera. You may have heard of it. (laughs) Uh, Which was a fascinating experience. Uh, But you can only do it for about four and a half years, which is what I did. Uh, Because uh, as as smart as all the people who were hired at that time were, ultimately you're you're making a soap opera. And it got to me after a while. So... um, uh, when I left, I spent two... The business changed a, a great deal in those... I was away for about five years. Uh, the business had changed a great deal. When, when I was running Second Stage, there were no partnerships between commercial producers and uh, not-for-profit theaters. We were very arrogant about our artistic process and all that. And when I came back, I came here to a Manhattan Theater Club to help out while Lynn was building the Broadway Theater there were so many commercial producers wandering the halls. It was such a different animal. There was Scott Rudin, there was Kevin and Jeffrey, who I later worked with, uh, uh, Daryl Roth. I mean, uh, it was quite, quite different. So I I spent two years sort of understanding where the industry was going and decided that once I I started a reading series, out of that reading series came Proof, uh, which I put together for Lynn, and she produced it. And then I saw it go off and... Win accolades everywhere, and I thought, huh, I wonder if I could do this for myself." So, uh, in 2000, uh, I started my own company called Agent Wood to produce commercial productions. And what I really wanted to do, although I'd mostly done plays in my life, was make a living. So I decided. <laughs> to- <laughs> so I decided to concentrate on musicals which I did and I sort of apprenticed on my first couple of musicals with Lonnie Price on Class Act. Uh, I was an associate producer on Bat Boy and then the first musical I and and I did a couple of other things and then the first one I did on my own was called Tick, Tick, Boom by Jonathan Larson. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, there were like six versions of it all in Jonathan's own voice and um, I I hired uh, Dave Auburn and Scott Schwartz and they put together this wonderful little musical. And it gave me more confidence. And then at uh, meantime, I had been developing Avenue Q, and Avenue Q was the first big uh, successful musical. I did do Metamorphoses, uh, which was a play that I fell in love with that came out of second stage. And uh, I've done a couple of plays since, off-Broadway, on-Broadway, but plays are hard. They're really hard. In the commercial world, in the not-for-profit world, great. And uh, so that brings us today. Uh, the last thing I did, as you probably know, is Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella which is maybe a story we'll get into later. But um, <laughs> here I am, making a living, thank God.
1: <laughs> I just want to ask, plays are hard because they're harder to
2: sell? Or you know, what's happened, I mean, everybody in this room knows it, in order for a play to... Off-Broadway is very, very difficult. It took us three years to recoup Altar Boys. It's very hard to get attention away from Broadway when ticket prices, um, you know, uh, discount tickets on Broadway are the same price as Off-Broadway. So people will go to Broadway first. There's much more uh, money for advertising. You know, the reach for Broadway is much wider. So Off-Broadway suffers. Uh, Not in the not-for-profit world. This is the commercial world I'm talking about. So um, I have produced plays on Broadway but it's gotten to the point where if you don't have a megastar, you're most likely going to lose money. And even when you do have a megastar, I had Robin Williams in a play. However, it wasn't the play that people wanted to see him in. So you really, and whereas actors want to stretch, Robin Williams wants to do a serious play that has some humor in it, but is, has some weight to it. The audience doesn't want to see that, you know, very often. They want to see them in the way that they love them. I mean, isn't it great that Bette Midler is not singing... And she's doing well. I think that's great. It's because it's a combination between the subject matter and her, and and it's succeeding. But that's that's a rare thing, actually. So plays are tricky. They're very, very tricky. And um, I, I've done better uh, when I first started my business off Broadway with uh, Our Lady of One Hundred Twenty First Street and Red Light Winter. There wasn't so much money at risk on those plays, so we didn't quite recoup, but we came very close. And, and People were very proud of those productions. But with musicals, you don't have to have stars.
1: You can just do the show and do it the best way you can. And that's, that appeals to me. Now, and I'm jumping ahead, and I'm, now my notes are totally to the side, but, yeah. um, but aren't musicals a much more complicated animal? Yes, that's what makes them so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think, you know, if you look at
2: all of entertainment, I think musicals are the most difficult to put together from, from scratch they're so challenging and so collaborative you have to really have a collaborative nature uh, when you do musicals because uh, there are are so many things to deal with that a good idea can come from anywhere and you have to be open to it and listen to it and sometimes it comes from the producers oddly enough (laughs) Uh, but it can come from the musical director or the choreographer or the director and the director has to have a vision so they tie it all together and sometimes say no if it's not right uh, but it's a very, very complicated process, which I think in some ways you're... It, it's a little like soap opera in the sense that you're building a story. You're building a story. And one of the best things about uh, my time in soap was that I was in the writer's room with the writers. Uh, it's also a very collaborative thing. And you, you get a six-month storyline like we did... Uh, 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 nobody watches one I'm sure uh, and then you have to break it up you have to break it up into weekly stories and then daily stories and you always have to make the audience long for more so what you are really doing is incrementally telling a very 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 long arc as opposed to a two hour arc or a two and a half hour arc so I think it made me a better producer in that sense as well because you know day after day after day we were doing this and it was a very informative a way to learn about storytelling, I think. But musicals, you know, they're, they can be in all kinds of forms. I mean, I, if you saw Here Lies Love, it's very different than Cinderella, you know. I mean, there are all kinds of ways to do musicals and do them well. I happen to really like Here Lies Love. I thought it was very exciting and lots of fun. Uh, but very different than what's going on on Broadway, you know. And, and uh, so building a musical from scratch is uh, very, very challenging and exciting. And putting the team together is the hardest thing that I have to do. That's That's the most difficult decisions I make, is who's writing the book, who's choreographing, who's directing, you know, on and on and on. Those are very,
1: very important decisions. So how do you make those decisions? How do you form that team? I mean, does it come from a... And how much say does the director have in that?
2: Oh, a lot. Um, A lot. Um, When I did Cinderella, I already had chosen Laura Osnes, (coughs) myself, in an earlier reading because I couldn't imagine anyone who would be better in the role. And fortunately, Mark Broca went along with that, but other than that, we made all those decisions together. But there were times when I said no, there there were times in the whole process that I would say no, and I would give a very clear reason why I would say no. and he uh, he mostly understood and we didn't fight at all or anything you know there's always someone else to go to and um, you know a lot of it is taste mm-hmm. I like to give people chances I like to get I mean most of my musicals have been done by book writers and directors even that it's their first big thing and I love that I love to guide them through that process um, not with Douglas what? Carter Bean, obviously but he, he, uh, he was the right guy for the job, it turned out. I spoke to some other people who weren't interested. Women, actually. I went to the women that I liked as writers, and they just they weren't interested. And so when Douglas came to me to pitch some projects, which I turned down, I, I knew that he had kids, and I said, this is sort of a crazy, interesting idea. Uh, what do you think of this? And he turned me down. and he came back about a month later he had done all this research starting with Charles Perrault from uh, uh, the 17th century on Cinderella and he had come up with this wonderful idea which is on stage now basically um, because I wanted Cinderella to have some purpose I wanted her to affect the prince as much as he affects her or else I could not live with myself (laughs) I just, uh, you know... And and I think that's why the women I knew turned it down, because all they could see was him carrying her off and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But... uh, Douglas came up with what I think is a wonderful story for for Cinderella. So you just never know where it's going to come from. But, you know, giving people a chance, and Mark needed a chance, too. Mark had done Cry Baby, and, and he'd done a good job with it, but it wasn't a hit. So I think people were reluctant to give him a big musical in some ways because he was known as a play director. But I knew Mark. I gave him his very first job in New York, actually. And, uh, which was what? Which was Rhymers of Eldridge by mm-hmm. Lanford Wilson, where he gave Amy Ryan her equity card. Mm-hmm. I love that. It's just a little story there. Um, and I knew that he was very musical and I'm one of those people who doesn't... who prefers not to have one person choreographing and directing because I really believe a director has a different set of skills. Not that they're not both storytellers, and on our show, they are both storytellers, and our musical supervisor is a storyteller. You can't have too many in the room, really. Um, but I think that there's certain skills a director has uh, that support a choreographer, so I prefer it that way. So Mark was one of the people that um, I was very interested in, and he came in and talked to Ted Chapin from the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, and we, we talked to a few other people, but Mark won the day, which was great. And Doug and Mark had worked together years ago at the at the uh, drama department, so they had a relationship. And uh, Doug thought he was the best uh, dramaturgical director he'd ever worked with. Mm-hmm. Although we already had a script by the time Mark came in, because Doug and I worked for about a year on it, and then Mark did further work. Um, but what was the question again? Did I get off track? I got I don't off even track. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I like to give people a chance. I mean, it's like the Underground where I do the shows for the Roundabout. It's just to me, that's just fun. You know, discovering writers who've never been produced in New York and finding young directors uh, to direct their plays and just have no pressure. Just just you know cast the best person for the role. Just what do you want to do? How can we make it happen for you? That to me is like, that's like a picnic to me. I just love it. So when I'm doing a Broadway musical and people are getting their chances, like the Avenue Q team and the Heights team, the Alter Boys team, it's it's thrilling. It's thrilling.
1: And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's easy to forget how, what a chance that was for both of those groups of people. Nobody knew who they were. That's right. And uh, not many people would have taken a chance on them because you know most people if you 're going to to if you 're doing a Broadway show, people want somebody who 's done a Broadway show already because it 's so big they 're afraid of tech i mean that's always the, that's a lot of the reason that's what is afraid. Tech. it's a, big, <laughs> a good thing to be afraid of because there's so much going on, and the team is so large that if you haven 't done it before it 's a big change yes so it 's difficult to put your faith in somebody who hasn't been there before. But I see
2: people's work before I hire them. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's hard for me. I know everybody in this room wants me to see their work, but <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for me because I have to see every Broadway show. I'm a Tony voter, and I'm working on the roundabout shows all the time, and I go to see as much as I can, uh, especially, we have a team, and when they say you got to check out this young director, I do it. You know, I do. Um, or this playwriter. I mean, we read plays all the time, so... I'm pretty aware of who the upcoming writers are and, and uh, you know, who I'd like to use on a musical sometime, for instance. Directors, you know, I try to see as much as I can um, of young directors or emerging directors, you don't have to be young, actually. Um, so, you know, it all boils down to taste, I think, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I have a particular taste that's different than other people's, I'm sure. I mean, Cinderella is my most mainstream show, honestly. There's not one bad word in it. <laughs> I almost said the word too. Uh, it's not my style, really. When you look at what I've done, uh, I've done edgier things, you know. I, I just—they appeal to me, you know—they excite me. Um, but I, I cry every time I see Cinderella because it takes me right back to my childhood and all those big luscious musicals that I used to see. So you know, whatever. Gets me is what I do, you know. Yeah. And you never know what it's going to be. I mean, I just read a play over the weekend for the Roundabout. And made me cry. And it's by this young writer, this young woman. I'm so happy it's a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and it, I cried. So I said, well, I, you know, I want to do this play, you know, at the Roundabout. So that's I, should, I read four other plays before that, you know, that I thought were interesting but messy. But I would like to nurture some of those writers. But this one I want to produce. It's ready. So I don't know how to
1: describe it something. how um, so how, I mean you are one of the people who's the mo- who seems most open actually to, to new directors new writers so what is the best way for somebody to get your attention without you know without, everybody's afraid of stalking <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, please don't stalk <laughs> well one way that we found some people we want to work with is they've assisted on mm. shows uh, either commercially or in roundabout and we try to follow their work after that if it's a good experience. it's always been a good experience, so I can't say if. Um, uh, Jill Rafts at a roundabout goes to see a lot, and my associate my development director, Josh Fiddler, goes to see a great deal, and I go see some. So we pool and what they say you, could, you should see this director's work, I go. So it, it can't just be one person, you know it's like you need a team. And uh, so we all try to divide things up and see them and, and tell each other about people's work that we see. Or sometimes we'll see one thing and say, let's see one other thing and see you know, if this was, if they have you know, the ability to do something else or you know, whatever we're looking for. I mean, I'm always looking for... Uh, I'm looking for several things. You know? I mean, directors that stage well, that tell the story well I'm looking for act- the directors who cast well who work with actors to um, somebody uh, John Cazale once said to me there are actors who fill up the words and actors who illuminate the words by telling another story underneath them mm-hmm. and if a director can pull that out of an actor I- I'm always intrigued by them. like that's how I discovered Evan Cabinet I'm sure other people knew Evan Cabinet but I didn't and I saw a couple of things he did in small spaces and I said he's the real thing he is actually. Um, but all those directors, I mean, Jason Moore, when we did um, Avenue Q, I saw one thing he did. I'm so impressed with it uh, that I brought him into interview. We interviewed a whole bunch of young directors, and, and he got the job because of how he interviewed. So um,
1: it happens all kinds of ways. You know. And what is it about the interview that you respond to? I mean, because that's a It's hard to get the interview, but then it's also intimidating to go into the interview when you're new. Um, Well,
2: I mean, always be prepared. Number one, Um, talk about the play or musical in a way that gets to the center of it. You know, the theme of it. That's, and then even if you don't end up like Jason gave us a visual image. that he didn't even end up doing, but somehow it was so inspiring that it was the one thing that really caught our imaginations. So, you know, it's, it's how would you approach it, really? I mean, you know, study it and say, I think the play's about this, therefore I want a designer who could bring this out or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, something will catch our imaginations and say, and also
1: the, the playwright
2: is a big part of this. So, uh, I will interview a director, and then I, I, I like to send them off with the playwright. And on Avenue Q, Jeff Woody met with... Finally, there were two Then we asked him to... Uh, uh, the, the composers, Bobby and Jeff, met with two writers, Jeff and another one, and they spent time with them. And so, you know, I always kid my godson and say, the secret to life is be popular, but um, <laughs> in a way... You know, your likability factor and the way you communicate is a very important part of your career. So uh, that's a bit of advice, but I'm sure you're all incredibly (laughs) likable. But you know what I mean, and who you know, and all that stuff is important. You know, where you've worked and which theaters you've given your time to and all that stuff. But who you know with you doesn't seem as important. Well, except unless it's a playwright who loves you and thinks you're okay. really good, and that the playwrights have introduced us to directors all the time, and and then we go see their work. And
1: but you take a playwright's recommendation as a strong recommendation. yes,
2: unless I've seen the work and I'm not. I don't think they're ready yeah. sometimes. But yes, all the time we'll meet with that person or see their work, and yeah, definitely.
1: So can we? T- can I take you back to your time at the Public? Joe Papp? Oh, Joe Papp. Yeah. Because, I mean, Joe Papp, everybody must know, he founded the public and he was a genius producer. Um, and Robin actually spent a, a number of years there, really, acting. And, and then he, from what, I, from what I read, he was the one who kind of understood first that you were a producer. Yes, he did. I think he just wanted to get me out of his
2: hair, really. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, I acted there a lot when I was young. I mean, I, I suppose I acted there more than anything. And I was married to a guy who also acted there a lot. And um, he passed away in 1977. Uh, and uh, Joe sort of got me out of bed and put me to work, and then said, "What do you want to do next?" So I kept. I started bringing him projects, and he did like three of them actually. And then finally said, "You know, you should think about producing." And I said. I'm an actress, you know, why would I want to produce? And uh, it, it, it sort of caught my imagination, and I ended up <coughs> casting some plays in London. And there were three American plays. They weren't doing new American plays in London, really, at that time. It was a long time ago. None of you were born, I'm sure. But in the 70s, they weren't doing uh, new American plays very much. I think maybe Michael Weller had a production there, that was about it. And we were going over there with three plays in a small fringe theater. And just like a week before we were getting on the plane, the guy who was producing it said, oh, I really don't have enough money to get you over there. The theater's waiting for you. And it's all set up. But I... I, I." And we were... There were two women and four men. And the two women said, let's raise the money. Let's get on that plane. Let's just get there and we'll figure it out. So she and I, I think we must have raised $3,000 or something like that. We got on the plane we went over there and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. <laughs> uh, but we got the plays up. And the um, the first one got a nice review, but the second one was a big hit. It was In the Boom Boom Room by David Rabe. And it was a big hit. And we were on the map. And the third one then, it was also a hit. It was a play by Susan Miller called Flux. And, uh, oh, I mean, it was like the first play at second stage. Carol and I, picked the absolute worst play we could have picked to do to open our theater it wasn't a bad play it was a good play uh, but we didn't know that the playwright uh, how shall I put this he had some problems some emotional problems and he uh, threatened the director he kept coming in with pages of rewrites like this and the director was his head was exploding and we kept trying to say okay stop let's focus and uh, (laughs) he 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 then threatened to kill us all he was a vet and our lawyer said don't leave your apartment stay home you know, so, so. So, the director quit the designers quit everybody quit and we went down to see Joe Papp and we said what do we do You know, we have this thing You know, we have an ad in the village voice or whatever it was and we thought it was so important that we get it. honestly we were like in the field Joe what do we do and Joe said Get up there and get that show on, Carol. You directed. Robin, you do everything else, and just get up there and do it. <laughs> the show must go on. So we did. Carol took over. I took over everything else: the box office, the cleaning, the theater, the everything. I mean, I just I helped with tech, and it was hired a lighting designer who we didn't know anything at that time about hiring a lighting designer. He must have brought in a hundred instruments. <laughs> cost us so much money. But <laughs> I just, I just, uh, uh, and we got the show up. And she called her young friend to play the lead. Two actors quit, too. And his name was Jeff Daniels. And Jeff Daniels came in and played the lead. And uh, I called this actress named Lynn Milgram. And she came in and played the other lead. And we opened. And we got good reviews. It was like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and the second show we did was uh, split by Michael Weller and Brooke Adams and John Heard played the leads. And it was a huge hit. And then Actors Equity Club. Us, uh, closed us down it was interesting because in the middle of the run. right after we opened and we had these great reviews we had lines around the, I can't say around the block because we were on the 16th floor but <laughs> down the elevator lines. <laughs> and they closed us down because at that time Actress Equity was trying to figure out how to do these letter of agreement shows without the actors having any future in them and what they want, decided they wanted to do at that time was to put a lien on the playwright and, of course, the dramatists still, you know, woo! they went crazy. And uh, they needed someone to use as an example. And they weren't going to use a successful theater. They were going to say, this little theater that just started that got good reviews, let's close them down. And Michael Weller said, I can't part from my union. You know, it's not a union, right. my guild. And he said, I, I'm sorry, I can't sign the agreement. They're going to close the show. And, of mm-hmm. course, it was... That was one bad, drunken night for that company, I can say, <laughs> uh, because it was a hit, and they were so excited about it, and it, w- there was nothing, it wasn't even us. We couldn't do anything about it, uh, and we were closed down for about 10 days, but what we didn't realize, that it was such a big issue, that it was written about on the front page of the New York Times, so suddenly, second stage theater was in the vocabulary. I mean... Who, who knew that that could come out of one of the things that was the most painful thing that ever happened to us? And when we went back on, we settled out again, and suddenly we, people knew who we were, and so it was easier to get people to work for us. And you know, it's one of those crazy things that you think you know is going to end you, and it ends up putting you on the map. So, uh, and then you know, every year we had one play that did well, and, and uh, we were very fortunate. That was a painful time. Of much like the London experience, but you know what? Don't give in. Lean in. Get it done. <laughs> I still do that sometimes. You know, there's always crises. There's always things that you think, Oh no! That actor walked out, and you know, we've got we've put playwrights on stage at Second Stage when when actors you know have problems. Or you know, so don't don't give up. There's always somebody out there who can help you or can do the role or you know. That's my pep talk for the day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's easy, it's easy to, be, to be great when things are going well. And it's really about how you respond when yes. something does not go your way. Yes. It's always
2: those phone calls that I, I, you know, I know they're coming on every show, you know, putting out fires or directors being freaked out about something or playwrights or writers being freaked out. And you just, you have to stay calm and you just, you know, bit by bit you solve the problem.
1: Is that somewhat of the director's role also?
2: Yes. I mean, a director should be a leader, for sure. And um, if they're feeling agitated, they should keep it to themselves
1: <laughs> as much <laughs> as possible. <Even> Except <laughs> to me.
2: They can do it to me, but to everybody else. They have to, you know, you know, you're, a lot of you are directors, and you know that leadership is an important quality in that situation, <laughs> a sense of confidence and and direction, you know, knowing where you're going and what you want, even when you don't. Although, as you get more and more confident, I, I, I see directors going, really? You know, I didn't even think of that. I guess I didn't read that that page of the script. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, you don't have to know everything, but, but you know, not, just to let the actors feel secure and the designers. Now, I think designers, especially set designers, I call them the silent director. Mm-hmm. Because You can get into a... I I could badmouth a set right now, but I won't do it. But you can can have a ground plan of a set, and if you're not aware of really how you're going to stage that show, your ground plan can really ruin you. It just can. And I just saw it happen in a show off-Broadway. It's it's so important. And on a musical... uh, it's even more important because musicals have and and plays these days they write them like films you know that they go boom boom I'm trying to teach writers not to do that but how do you move without spending a lot of money how do you do something that you've never seen before to move without spending money you know what I mean I mean it's very hard I mean it's just all these plays are being written with quick cuts now and it's very tricky for directors and um, musicals you, you need a designer who's musical knows how to move it. I mean, I think uh, just, you know, to be honest, I live with Anna Luizos who I think is one of the best uh, musical theater designers because she is a musician and she's passionate about musicals. That's her her life's dream was to work on musicals. And I think that if you saw High Fidelity or uh, Cinderella or any of the ones, or Edwin Drew, any of the ones that she's done, she has a really deep understanding how to make them and and there are others I mean obviously there, there are a lot, Scott Pask is good and there's a lot of good designers but when you choose the right designer for a play know their strengths I mean some of the most brilliant play directors are not good musical I mean uh, play designers are not good musical designers in my opinion they just don't have it in their gut to move them well I you know Cherry Jones, Jones once said something to me that, I, it, that really resonated she said oh Rob you know it's not always the best acting that wins. It's the most acting. That wins. <laughs> well said. And it's, in a way, sometimes it's the most set. People go, wow, that's a great set. But if you really look at it, it's really not well designed for the show. It's And, and directors who insist on being on stage rather than serving the piece from the inside out, that's the most direction. You know what I mean? So uh, they get attention. A lot of times they get attention. Uh, but people who know on the inside of the industry, which, you know, not that many people, I suppose, but I, I, after all this time in the business, I can tell when a set is working and when it's not. And I can tell when a director's being flashy but there's nothing underneath it. You know, concept isn't everything. Uh, concept's nice. It's nice to have people jumping around a stage, you know, but, like, wh- what's the story you're telling and how are you telling it through the actors?
1: <laughs> yeah. I wasn't referring to anything I know, specific. About <laughs> about <it. laughs> um do you want to hear about concept in that pitch meeting? If if it's if it's a show that needs one. Oh. Mm. I mean, but not every show needs one.
2: No, I remember when they first Anna and Jason Moore came in with the first design for Avenue Q and we said, you know. <coughs> You're making too much of it. It was too much moving stuff. Go back. And they went <laughs> They spent, you know, hours talking about it, this thing, these turtles that move and all this stuff. And they went back and they came up with, I think, a really smart, elegant idea with things just pulling out. And the big thing for Avenue Q was the scale. How did you how did you scale a show with puppets and people? And then finally Anna came up with this idea of these dioramas that became their apartments and you know it was brilliant I thought And but we sent them back once we said this is not serving the show this is the wrong kind of set you know so we I mean I try to help when I see something that I, I, I think your actors can only move this way what about the diagonals I, I say to directors sometimes you know are you going to be able to use this space the best way you can you know We've
1: talked a lot about your your relationship and interaction with directors, but what about with choreographers? Do you have? I mean, I assume you have less with them, but maybe not. Choreographers are storytellers too. It's very similar. Um,
2: yeah, I to, I mean definitely it, we talk the same way really in a way. Sometimes you say, that's a lot of nice dancing, but you know you lost the story in there. Mm-hmm. You know you're showing off what you can do, but there's a story we're telling here you know the, the one thing is very tricky about the ball in Cinderella how do you keep how do you keep the story going during the ball you know that they've met each other for the first time and they're in the process of falling in love I think Josh Rhodes did a great job with it but it took a while to find um, yeah and we cut one of his best little numbers out of the show which he was heartbroken about but it was to serve the show I mean, like things are painful, very painful. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with the music. Everything is about telling the story. Yeah. You know. I mean, I can't say, don't do that step, do this step. I would never do that with a director either. But you can say when, when it's getting off track or uh, you, the audience is shifting a lot. You say, you're losing them right there.
1: Things like that. So how do you give notes? <laughs> and who do you give them to that's another
2: I try to give them to the director until later on when I think everybody needs to hear them Uh, but I I think it's best to talk to the director first because it's their overall vision and if they want to disagree with you you don't want them doing that for their sake in front of a bunch of people I think it's much better that way I once interviewed Hal Prince and I asked him that question and he said how do you do it and I said, well, uh, 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 what I do, what I tell people is directors hear three notes at a time. That's it. They hear it. You know, if you give pages and pages to notes and notes, you know, you, forget it. They're just going to turn you off and not listen to you. So, what are the big things? And Halperin said to me, well, here's what I do I take lots of notes when I watch it run through, pages and pages, and then I give the director a couple of weeks and I check them off. And then I go in and say, okay, this is what you're missing. It's the same theory in a way. Don't speak too soon. I don't like to give notes till the third preview when I think something happens in the third preview of a show where it kind of settles in in a certain way where you can really see it. Because things are going wrong, terribly wrong. The, certainly, the second preview. <laughs> but, uh, the first. I mean, give the guy a break or the gal a break. Let the show, you know, ferment a little bit, and so, and then speak to them. But I, I like to go big first, and, and, and talk about the big issues of, of the overall. And then, you know, by the time we, we did five weeks of previews with Cinderella, by the time we were in the fifth week, we were slashing and burning a little bit, but. But we also could say that line, take it out or change it. or you know, And not that we didn't say that earlier, but I was always telling my partners who are not as old as I am, too early for that, too early. To, no, let's, we'll get to it, but they're more important things. You know? So I, I try to really think about that. about you know. And with certain directors, you, you really don't have to. Like when I worked with Sam Gold in The Underground, I said maybe two things to him. 'Cause I thought he had a really strong grip on the show. And uh, anything I if I really thought he was amiss, there were maybe two things that I would say. So you have to know who you're dealing with and you know how experienced they are and when they're ready to hear something, I'm sure you've all had that experience where people just talk and talk and talk and talk. It's like, please shut up <laughs> and I, I don't want to be one of those people. I wanna I wanna help. I wanna help. So I'm very careful about my note giving.
1: And how about when you were an actor? Um, you know, that has to affect the way that you're giving notes. And how did you, since, since everybody in the room here is giving notes to actors, how did you as an actor like to give notes? And what was helpful to you in that situation? Sometimes you just want a line reading, let's face it. That's mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> interesting.
2: Sometimes you do. Uh, I think, for, uh, you know, I've worked with directors, especially in the underground, who had trouble translating things to actors. And because I was an actor, I, I can sometimes give them ideas of how to do that. Something active, something... Uh, it's, you know, metaphors are great, but they're not great for actors, I think. I think you really have to tell them to try something different, that you want something different, or whatever it is that, you know, an actor speak. But um, So what I try to do is really think about that, <coughs> you know try to seduce him or try to whatever it is like that would be the note to the actor try to to, to him. give to the director yeah. why don't you try giving this note to the actor yeah. you know with but, but certain people like Mark Brokaw I don't have to do that he's very very good with actors but there's some uh, you know younger directors that I've worked with where I had one director in the underground come up to me and say how do I, say, how do I get that out of the actor what do I say I want to get this and And I don't remember what it was, but I remember saying, oh, well, how about try this, you know. Um, So it's very helpful to have been an actor because I I understand the process and I understand what helps you do something surprising in the scene, you know, something that, if you give them an action that's different than what they're saying, you know, just what I said before, which is what are they illuminating about that moment? Um, So... But, you know, I, if, if I'm not asked that, I try not to do it. I just say, I think they're missing something in this scene, and I think you might want to take a look at that.
1: That's kind of great, though, for a, a younger director to actually go and say that to you. It was great. Because there, it shows a, a kind of confidence in his own, yes. his or her own work. Absolutely. This is a director who
2: actually is very successful at concept and is really good at that and was in a learning curve of... The inside, you know, getting the actors to uh, live in his concept basically.
1: Which is interesting. Um, we will have a chance for questions for Robin in just a couple minutes um, so you can think about that. Um, you know what we didn't really get to was how, I, we know you see other people's work, but that was the question that was not quite answered was how do, how do people get them to see their work? What What is a way to? Well, find a really wonderful play and
2: uh, get a theater to do it. I mean, you know, there are small theaters that I've attended because somebody said, gee, there's a play you should see. You know, I mean, I've gone to a lot of them. I've gone to Rattlestick. I've gone to a lot of the smaller theaters. Um, You know, I get a million postcards. And what catches my eye sometimes is... it's it's usually somebody I know a writer I know or something that sounds unusual I mean I'm always looking for things I haven't seen on a stage before something that seems very original you know and and sometimes I'll say Josh go see this if you like it I'll go or if I have time I'll go myself but you know young composers that we've been following emerging composers as they say They have a new thing, and we'll definitely always check. One of us, the three of us, will always check those out. Um, So, you know, look for the same talent that I look for, basically.
1: I think that's a good way. Is that not good enough? You look, (laughs) (laughs) but it's surround yourself with
2: talent. Yeah, I mean, you're you're telling us who you are by what you pick to do, right? and that's it may not be my sensibility but it may be somebody else's you know I mean there are shows on Broadway that I would never do but they're successful you know it's like that's uh, everybody's got different taste. so if it's my taste then I'll pay attention to it
1: so I want to ask you my one last question um, about which is totally kind of somewhat off the subject but I feel like in this field where everyone is afraid of like where they're going to work next and what their next job is going to be you maintain an unusual ability to have, have a great job and then leave a great job yes
2: <laughs> I
1: mean I think that's a good thing I believe in change
2: I like it. I, it it excites me I don't know if I'm going to do it again but you never know um, it's yes it's brave it's scary when I started Aged in Wood I was terrified I didn't have that much money in the bank I had some but I just bought an apartment and I thought wow how long can I do this you know, I always have a part-time job. That's how I got the roundabout. At first, I was booking theater, off-Broadway theaters as a part-time job, just so I knew I could pay my, my rent, um, my, whatever it was. And uh, now the roundabout is sort of my part-time job. You know, I do it for love, but, you know, I, when I took the job from Todd, I, I thought, oh, good, because <laughs> I'm not booking theaters now. I need something that I know I, I can do on the side. It's turned into a much bigger job because I can't help myself, but... <laughs> and it does dovetail Yes, with I'm work. not one of those rich people producing. You know, I mean, I'm really earning my living doing it. There's, there's, there's not that many of us. It's hard. It's hard. You know, because you just don't know. I mean, Avenue Q is still running, but I, I, I don't think I can live on it now because it's off Broadway. It's helpful, but uh, so you, you know, we're always trying to think of what's, what are we rolling out because how long is something going to run? And so it's, uh, it, it, it's. I've always had some kind of cushion and it's worked for me because I, um, I have
1: ADD. I call it multitasking, but I really <laughs> don't <know. laughs> So, questions for Robin. Question. Um, I've written a show that's based on existing material. How do you handle royalties and rights? I know that uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, you have a new book for that, so did you have to? what did you have to do to get that? Uh,
2: it took about a year to make the deal, actually. Mm-hmm. We negotiated with uh, Vicki Trowell, who's their lawyer, So you have to push them and say who represents you And and you have to make a deal with them And if you're making a deal for uh, You're not making it for a commercial situation You're just making it to to create your show, right?
1: Well, it is for commercial Oh, it is? Yeah, absolutely
2: Oh, okay So uh, do you have a producer?
1: No, but I've been talking to uh, Patricia Clausen about it
2: Uh Uh-huh Well, you should talk to your producer And see what kind of royalty structure would work for them And what you do is you you option it, usually for a year or 18 months while you're working on it, with a right to renew it for a certain amount of money. And you know that whatever venue you're going to do it in, you should be able to already have set up what they're getting as a royalty. Right? That's about basically it. But get a good entertainment lawyer.
1: Can you workshop the show without having gotten the rights?
2: Other than existing material.
1: Definitely, you could do a reading in your apartment, but yes. you might not <laughs> ever. No, 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 no. But I'm serious. I'm not kidding. Yeah, you I could. mean It actually is a good way to test whether something works or not. You can hear it out loud and be like, "That." Yes, is but it? I've seen heartbreak when you know yeah.
2: people have spent a year or yes. two working on something and then they go to get the rights and they can't get. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Because they find out somebody else. Has I've control. had I mean I tried to get the rights on, on something and I didn't do a bit of work. I had all these ideas about it, but I couldn't get them. Couldn't get them. So you just be careful about that. You don't want to waste your creative yeah. energy.
1: I have a question about building the team because I'm often building teams and and you know people's history but you know, people also shine
2: themselves a lot. So how what you're looking for to make sure their personalities are gonna go well together and hold up because mm-hmm. everybody can seem so good on the first day of school but yes do so <laughs> research yeah research Mark Brokaw does a ton of research calls everybody that person's ever worked with <laughs> <laughs> what do they like in the room right yeah definitely call other people people call me about yeah. people yeah. I've worked with that's why you have to be pleasant all the
1: time <laughs>
2: I try but um, yeah definitely call people and people are always happy to, I mean I've called directors and say I've heard something about this actor, what's the story, mm-hmm. you know, we did research on some people just recently, yeah. It's, it's, and, you know, and it's not seen as sort of spying no, on them? Or- I don't think there's anything wrong with it. You, I mean, you just don't want a troublemaker in the room right? who sucks all the energy out, and there are some people who do that, yeah. and you want to know up front, and sometimes you'll say they're worth it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you will, but then you know what you're getting yourself into, mm. you know, but you don't want that in a designer. I mean, I think there's a reason that some designers that I've worked with have gotten so far. They're so easy in the room. And they're smart, and they do their job, and they're indefatigable. You know, I don't want to work with somebody who says, Oh, really? William, I belong. You tell him to stand on his head and design a dress, and he would do it. (laughs) He never I called him recently, and I said, William, we have to do a number on the Tony Awards. And I don't know. Has anybody seen Cinderella here? Yeah. Well... Laura has this first transformation of a dress and she uses this tree on the stage right and blah, blah, blah. I said, you know, I'm not sure that's going to look good on camera. Do you think you could just transform her, just transform her with the the, the tree? Oh, 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 yeah, what, yeah, yeah, uh, yes, let me...
1: (laughs) That's
2: the kind of response yeah. you want. Yeah. You don't want somebody to say, oh, God, how will I do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I do. So, really and is. he's like that. He's divine. He's Thank you. you
1: um, I'm really interested in the the amount of time that you've seen this business change and evolve in so many different things. I'm My mom's a financial analyst and I feel like I'm asking, you know, she's, she always tells me how like retirement funds go up and down and you can't get yeah. bogged down in the down parts and I, everyone talks about the recession and how money's um, drying up and everything. So I'm interested in two trends that maybe you've seen or thought about over the course of time. One is money and whether this all is all cyclical and recessions or whatever, or if, you, if you're seeing a trend over time. And two, about, I know it's a long conversation, but just simply like uh, women and minorities. If you're seeing overall that opportunities are really blowing up for different people, or is there sort of this glass ceiling that's just always going to be there because of certain oh God, things? I hope not.
2: <laughs> um, well, there's a lot of money around the theater, and it hasn't had a recession of money. The, what's happened, however, as you've all seen, is starting with a certain producer, people who put very little money in the show became producers of both titles, right? So there are shows on Broadway where somebody raised $100,000 and they're walking around town saying, I produced X, right? Um, So, you know, I keep thinking I should change my title. But anyway, (laughs) if you asked them what the deal for the author was, they had no idea. You know what I mean? They didn't really produce the show. So those people, uh, the money people who write checks or... Money from their friends and don't really produce the shows, those people now have become what I call the shoppers. So they shop around and decide. Sometimes they, I know people who have done three shows in this season, they have their name on three shows. It's like going to Las Vegas, you know, and betting on three different numbers, you know, and that's what they're doing so that they can get a Tony. You know. I find that distressing, but it's also useful when I'm raising money because sometimes they choose my shows. I put their name up there I know they didn't do anything except raise money but it it makes them feel good and you know I let it go Uh, (laughs) but but what's happened is whereas at the beginning I could go in and this actually happened and pitch Tick Tick Boom and and play Jonathan Larson singing and say this is my David Auburn just won a Tony and Scotch Watch is this young director and I could get people excited and they'd write a big check now, they say, well, call me when you're doing a workshop. Or let me see the reading. I saw two workshops of Cinderella and I'm not sure you're really going to pull it off. This happened. I had one person pull out $500,000 at the last minute because the second workshop, they didn't see really the work. I said, look at, look at my career. That's all I've done is develop work. Of course we're going to fix uh, the things that you think are wrong with the show. Or maybe not all of them, but I would say most of them. So that's what's distressing about the money in our business right now. Is they think they, they have more control in a funny way. I mean, they don't control me, but I have to I have to dig through them and find the people who are who are going to go on my ride. You know, um, but there's a lot of money out there that wants to have their name on shows, and new people keep coming in. They get bored with their own careers. You know, one guy wrote a two million dollar check for Cinderella. I mean, really. <laughs> It's just fun for them, you know? So they're out there. Mm-hmm. So I haven't
1: seen any... And you have a track record. I do. I mean, that's the thing. Is but I still have to work
2: hard to raise
1: money. I understand, but I'm saying... Especially $13 in he, <laughs> he believed in you because of your track record, too. I hope so. Yeah, I think so. I think so.
2: And the other thing about... I'm always talking about, like, bring me the women playwrights, bring me the women directors, you know? As a matter of fact the next underground show we're only considering women directors that we know because i do think it's harder for women as directors especially designers too i look at designers same thing not so much with choreographers i would think but broadway is you know it's still a man's world And, and men are producing men own the theaters when i was pitching cinderella you'd think i was talking latin they, I, I had Rodgers and Hammerstein, I had Cinderella, two huge brands, and the guys would just like look at me like, really, really, is that going to be, is that going to sell tickets? I said, you know, women, women are the ticket buyers in this business, and men are running it. That's one of the problems. It's a, it is a problem, and so. Now, you know even the Schubert's I'm in a the Schubert theater and Bob Wankle said to me wow you really you've got a big hit wow I said why are you surprised <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was going to do well you know I could do a less good show and I think it would do well does he it, say that to David Stone do you probably not yeah. yeah so am I treated differently and not so much anymore but coming up the ranks definitely it was harder for me than it was for certain guys and I'm sure women directors have and I even hate saying that I hate saying women playwrights and women directors I hate it I don't ever want to see it in print but you know it's I'm paying attention to it and Carol Rothman pays attention to it we always had one woman directing every season Uh, especially when Carol stopped directing because we really wanted to help Carol had struggled herself and you know when she was a director and so she's very conscious of it but not everybody is It's harder, and minorities same thing. I mean, same thing. I mean, when (coughs) you really, you really have to, you know. If you're good, you'll you'll make it. You know what I mean? If you're really, really good, you'll find a way in, like Lin Manuel, or you know. um, But yeah, it's harder. It's definitely
1: harder. Um, As a commercial. When you don't have something with a show like a brand or recognizable commodity? Say that? Uh, yeah. As a commercial producer, if a, a show that you're looking at doesn't have a brand like Roger Lear's Next or a recognizable commodity like a movie or something, what is it about that project that makes you think it would be commercially viable? Um,
2: it's a good question. <laughs> I'm not always right. Um, I'm working on something now that we're taking up to Hartford next April, and it, there's nothing showy about it. Uh, John Rando's directing it, and the reason I responded to it because I was dragged by Manny Eisenberg to this reading, and I laughed from beginning to end, and I was totally charmed by it. It's some of the best lyrics I've ever heard in contemporary theater. And the music's very tuneful, which I like I like a nice tune and I like that esoteric kind of music um <laughs> I mean I'll go I mean i respond to certain shows but anyway I but the, I'm afraid that it's going to be a hard the title is just a title um uh, Rob McClure is going to do the reading but you know he's a star to me but he's not a star to the tourists right um the instinct I have about it is it's pure entertainment, which is you know, hard to find and it's smart it's smart, and it's uh, it's funny, and I like funny, funny is like the thing that really makes me respond to things first, honestly, heart and and humor are the things that I respond to, but we're taking it to Hartford, because we want to see how audiences react to it, and how the local critics, and maybe the New York Times will come and tell us yay or nay, and so we're enhancing it up there, Stuart Oaken and I. Um, it's scary out there, you know, I, I don't believe you have to do a, a star-driven musical. It doesn't hurt when you have Sean Hayes and, and uh, Kristen Chenoweth, but you don't have to. I mean, I've done a lot of musicals without stars that are just fine. Um, it, you have to just take a chance sometimes that this will have a broad appeal, you know. That's all I can say. I mean Avenue Q, I remember when when they first said some of the lines in Avenue Q or <laughs> even when they said when they sent me the first song, It Sucks to Be Me, even back then I thought, really? Can we say that? Is that <laughs> a Were people like it? And I said, you know what? It makes me laugh the hell I you know. You know, when they said the word pussy, I thought I was gonna die. <laughs> 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 yeah, we have that's tape. Right. But Going, here go the groups. Uh, it's true, we've never had groups at Avenue But you know, it's the tenth year and we're still going, so you know So maybe we open the world up a little bit.
1: I just had a question about production teams. When you cut co- when someone comes to the project and the team is just not right, how do you work with deconstructing that team? If
2: you you're precious, I don't know. That's tricky. I don't think I've ever been in that situation. Um, I think if, if you're a director and that happens, you, you, you need to... You know, the one thing I don't want a director to ever be is a coward. You know, if somebody needs to be fired, fire them. I feel that way as a producer as well. I mean, I, I, I always show up. I, I haven't fired that many people, but when I've had to, I've fired them. Uh, I went with the director to fire them. Walter Bobby did the most brilliant firing I've ever seen actually (laughs) with an actor he and I went up to Boston to fire somebody out of high fidelity and he we walked into her dressing room and Walter said I made a terrible mistake you are a wonderful talented woman you're going to have a great career but you're in the wrong part and I've done you a disservice I thought that was and he meant it he meant it I thought it was brilliant um If it's somebody on your team that you're having trouble with, you just have to say, I don't think this is working out. You've got to get rid of them. Just be brave, you know, with your producer, without your producer. Just don't, unless the play, if the playwright's wedded to that person, then walk away from the project. Don't do it. If you think it's the wrong person, say, then you'll find somebody else. Don't suffer.
1: Uh, I... Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, have you ever been involved in immersive or site-specific staging of musicals, and do you think that um, there's a place for that type of staging in a commercial world?
2: Yes, I do. I think there is a place. I was one of the first people to work on the ride. You know the ride? Mm -hmm. And and the vision for the ride was brilliant, and then it got sort of watered down by money people. But uh, Alex Timbers and I talked for a long time about getting a space and just doing um, uh, his uh, you know the thing he did out in Brooklyn which was the scary thing you know I don't know if anybody oh, saw uh, it Hell
1: House, Hell House thank oh, okay.
2: you I thought Hell House was brilliant so yes I think Here Lies Love has, is an environmental piece of theater and the one thing that I think about it if, if it were me and, and moving it I wouldn't put it in a theater I'd put it in a like a sleep no more space, you know. I put it. I love sleep no more. That was fun too. I, I love all that kind of stuff. And if I encountered the right thing with the right director, like it was Alex, and he had an idea, and came to me. I, I'd be very interested in it. Yeah. Um, what do you What
1: do you think about? groups of actors and directors who are now
0: coming together to start their own companies, like what the second stage was at the beginning, now that a sort of affordable space is kind of disappearing in New York, and that sort of scene is
1: moving to the outer boroughs. Where do you you think that's going? Is there still a need and place for it? With commercial theater in New York?
2: You're t- starting a commercial company or a well, not-for-profit? starting a, a, s- a small not-for-profit that could sort of take hold in in Manhattan, I guess. Yeah, like- I mean you're right. Space is uh, yeah. Where do you go in Manhattan? Way downtown or up in, up way uptown? But I mean I traveled to Brooklyn. I've traveled to places to see shows. I mean I think if it's if you're a bunch of talented people, pe- people will find you. You know, starting something is always exciting and difficult. It just is. But what the piece of advice I got was make sure you're doing something specific that's different than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a mission. That's why it took us so long to figure out what second stage was going to be. Give yourself a mission that stands out. You know, we we were the first people to devote seasons to one playwright. Now there's a whole theater doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was something that evolved out of what we were doing. But you know, there are there are ideas out there that haven't happened yet. You know, so if you can find something very that's just yours, I, that's the best way to do it.
1: You have a very specific mission with Asian wood as well, and it's right on the home page of your website, which I find amazing for a commercial producer. Yeah, well, I come out of the non for profit world. Yeah. I can't help myself. Yeah. I, I, I,
2: think, I think any business you start should have a set of core values. It's re- very important. And um, uh, my core values have to do with bringing young people to the theater, keeping the theater alive with younger sensibilities. I mean, I got a little too young on this one, but um, but there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I, I like to... I like, our, our, the theater is... If we get too corporate and too stodgy and our prices keep going up the way they're going, it's just horrific. We're going we're gonna to lose what the theater is on Broadway. We're going to become theme parks, as we all know. So, you know, the, the independent producers, it's our job to kind of break ground and do things that are, um, you have to do things that are entertaining, but that are surprising in some way, and um, that, that interest young people. I'm always interested if I go to a show now it doesn't happen too often but it does happen where I don't respond to it but I hear all the young people in the office are responding to it I say oh, well that's, that's a good thing I may not have produced it but that's a good thing you know I mean Avenue Q obviously did that but and In the Heights and you know some of my shows uh, so that's that's my strongest core value I also want to return people's money as fast as I can so I I want to create a uh, running costs—that's doable. You know, there's a lot of musicals out there that have running costs right now that are $200,000 a week higher than mine. That's insane. You know, so it's a twofold thing. You have a responsibility to your investors and to the to the theater, to the art of theater.
1: Right? Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, different hats as far as nonprofit and for-profit as far as the director's role? think, are there different expectations for a director and for a profitable world? I don't think so.
2: No. I think,
1: no, I don't think so.
2: I mean, I, I would talk to Mark Rooney about ordinary days the same way I talk to Mark Rooney. I, I don't think there's any difference. I mean, the, your budgets are different. Mm-hmm. A, a director has to respect a budget.
1: But... When you step into a nonprofit organization, usually there's an infrastructure that dictates process. Similar.
2: Is there really? I think often there is. Uh, you have to respect the institution. Uh, if people are not being helpful to you, you just have to nod and say thank you. <laughs> you know, I mean, directors. You know, I always kid them when they go, "Aha, huh uh-huh. I go, "Oh, are you just yesing me to death?" <laughs> <I'm actually laughs> Uh, but there are, I know there are a lot of people who are saying things to directors that are not helpful. I've heard these stories. And uh, I think you just have to be gracious about it and try to survive, especially if it's an infrastructure of a not-for-profit. You know, if you have a dramaturg there that is not helpful, you have to have a good argument against what they're saying or just yes them to death. That's what I would do. What else? What other things? In it? Well, for example,
1: you be dictated a certain amount of rehearsal hours, a certain number of weeks, a certain tech process, well, that you you have shops it. that are all in place, right? Yes. So you, you tap into a machine that already exists versus yes. kind of a creating a machine from the ground up, which often can happen in a commercial setting. So then, are you the producer setting up a lot of that process? You'll have X number of rehearsals, yeah. X number of tech time? Well, yeah, sometimes your about. contracts
2: will determine that, of course. But, I mean, around about, there's a certain amount of time you can. Uh, but we feel it's we give them a, a, a good preview period for new work you should always have a good preview period so if you go into some place that says you have four previews I, I think you might as well shoot yourself in the foot You know, that's insane um, but yes I think you have to respect those things and you have to figure out a way to do it within the confines I mean that's the challenge for a director I imagine but I, I would hope that not for profit theaters would give you a, a structure that was helpful I would, I
1: would hope. I haven't worked at all of them yet. <laughs> uh My question was as emerging directors, we often have to produce our work. So, um, and and one of the things that I think a lot of us are sort of confused about is, is this idea of producing your work and then it transfers over. So, what are uh, and I've been reading about the League of of, of uh, broader Producers and they have like a education program, mm-hmm. is that, I'd like to know your opinion about the program. Is it helpful for us to kind of learn what that structure is like? You mean CTI. Yes. Yeah.
2: yeah. I think it's a helpful program. I know a lot of people have taken it and I've spoken there a couple of times. I think it is a helpful program. I think you learn about the business of theater. because I mean, we all started from the art, right? And that's the fun part. Uh, but the business can be fun too. I mean, it's challenging but it, it can be fun. I think it's helpful to understand what, how you, how you structure a show so that it becomes economically viable. I think that's, and what are all the ins and outs?
1: I think, that's, I think it's an important thing. Time for one more question. Um, how do you keep your running costs so low? Well? I mean, you seem incredibly successful. Is there a... Uh, uh, by
2: monitoring them incredibly closely. Uh,
1: and, I mean, in I other words,
2: they're... I would rather spend money in my production costs front right. than in my weekly expenses. Um, well, Mark Brokaw and Anna Luizos brought in a set that was very much like the one you see on stage, but it was a million dollars over bu- budget. And that had to do with the amount of motors and things that affected the running costs. That was what I was really focusing on. Yeah. You could put another half a million dollars in the production budget because we were under... But it was that those weekly costs, you can't have that many motors and winches and you know, it's like it adds up. And it was so
1: theatrical. I mean the, you didn't miss that. I mean there was magic on stage. I mean to see sit in the audience you don't miss that's right. the motors. That's the motors. right. It's right. You don't. Very but you know, I thought they were gonna faint when I told them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's right. but uh, but I did say the place that I always want to spend money is in the magic, the transformations, right. the horse and carriage and, yeah. and the dresses. I want them to be special and I'll spend more money on that. Uh, although originally Anna wanted the horse carriage to rise from the ground but you know you cut into the floor you have an elevator there go your costs. So we said no. You know, I, I Make them beautiful enough that when they appear people will think they're great.
1: <laughs> Which I think she did actually.
2: Um, just every single thing in your running costs we pay attention to. And we, we you know told everybody that they had to cut something along the way
1: you know, to keep
2: them manageable. And how come
1: you've never directed? You're such an incredible storyteller.
2: <laughs> you know, I don't want to direct. <laughs> I, I respect directors. I don't know if I have the patience. I mean, I'm very patient with directors in, in the room, but I don't know. I, I find sometimes that actors who direct are the, are the ones who give results most quickly. I've noticed that. Yeah. They, they are very result-oriented. And I, I worry that I, I, I would be like that, you know. And I'm very happy doing what
1: I do. But thank you.
2: Well,
1: thank you very much for being here.
0: Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.